Well, good morning. It is, uh, again, my honor, my privilege to be able to uh, bring God's word to you. If you can, please take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 14, and we will begin by reading the psalm in its entirety. Thank you. When you see me in the pulpit, you've probably come to expect that I will be in the Psalms. And uh, I've uh, just been so blessed by the Psalms and just enjoyed preaching them. And uh, I hope you will be blessed as well as we go through another Psalm here today. Psalm 14. Title is for the choir director, Psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great dread for the Lord, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Are you a good person? Most people would say that they are a good person. I remember um, an evangelist, I think it was Todd Friel, and he was walking around a major city and he was asking people, are you, do you consider yourself a good person? And he asked multitudes of people whether they thought they were good. And everybody, without exception, said, yeah, I'm a good person. And that's how we all, by nature, seem to look at ourselves. We usually think we are good people. But maybe a different question is, gets to more of the heart of the matter here in our text. Would God say that you're a good person? If God would appear in our church here and I could ask him that question about you, what would God say about you? Well, God isn't going to appear today He's not going to uh, manifest his glory in, in right to, beside me here. He's not going to speak from heaven about uh, your condition, the condition of your soul. But God will speak, in a sense, as we and answer that question about whether you are a good person uh, as we look at the text here. He will speak to us through Psalm 14. Just a little bit about the psalm, the background here. You'll notice the, the title there has the Psalm of David. Where, uh, this is a psalm that David wrote, and we, so we know the author. We don't know when or where it was written. We, we kind of look at the psalm, and we can understand that there is uh, persecution in the background here. There's, there's trouble for God's people. Uh, but other than that, we don't know. Interesting enough that Psalm 14 is repeated again in Psalm 53. Psalm 53 has some minor differences, in it, but it's very similar to this psalm, almost exact. And then this psalm is also quoted by Paul. Paul quotes this psalm in Romans 3 when he talks, when he wants to emphasize the fact that both Jews and Gentiles are equally condemned uh, under the law. And all of them need God's grace. You know, when something is repeated by God, you know, twice, you should really pick up your, you know, prick up your ears and listen. But when something is repeated by God three times, that's, we know that that's something, is, this is very important. That God really wants us to understand the truths in this passage. And so that... This is the psalm that we're looking at today. And I've divided the psalm into three parts. 
verses 1 to 3 is the fool's rejection. Verses 4 to 6 is the fool's rage. And verse 7 is the fool's ruin. So the first section, verses 1 to 3, is the fool's rejection. The second section, verse 8, 4 to 6, is the fool's rage. And verse 7 is the fool's ruin. I also had alternate headings for that uh, to take it in a different way. Uh, Yahweh, you could look at Yahweh's evaluation, Yahweh's protection, and Yahweh's restoration. But I thought the focus was more on the fool here, and so we went with uh, a more fool-oriented outline. And so as we look at the psalm, just the, the overall theme, this psalm really does set forth before us the depravity of man which is often then directed towards God's people and also then gives us a promise of God's protection, God's restoration, uh, so that God's people can live with hope and joy and peace in the midst of persecution and danger. In a sense, if we combine it back to, uh, if we take it back to the theme of the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, talking about the way of the righteous, and the way of the righteous often goes through times where we are of difficulty. And in this psalm, Psalm 14, we see the, the way of the righteous often is filled with persecution. And so this psalm contributes to that, to that, um, the theme of psalms. It's just that how do we go through, how do the righteous go through persecution? How do the righteous deal with living in a world that's just full of fools, full of corrupt people? Also notice that the the other part to the title there, for the choir director. And there's lots of psalms that talk about, uh, that are dedicated to the choir director. Um, it's the one who leads the worship. And the psalm, this reminds us that this song, this psalm was sung by Israel in their worship service. Think about that for a moment. In Israel's hymn book, they had two psalms. Two psalms that dealt exclusively exclusively with the depravity of the human soul. They sang about that. They worshipped with those psalms. I mean, when you think of churches today, how many um, psalms, hymns do we have in in our hymn books that deal exclusively with the depravity of man? There's not a lot of them. You know, if you had a a hymn called, I'm a Rotten Sinner, you're a Rotten Sinner, we're all Rotten Sinners, uh, it's probably not the most popular and the most favorite of of our psalms and hymns. But I think there's something instructive about the fact that this psalm is included in Israel's hymn book. And it reminds us that uh, our songs, when we're singing together, is not just directed to God. It's not just directed to in praising God, worshiping God. There's an element in our singing together that's instructive, that's teaching each other. Uh, the Psalms do that. The Psalms are not always just praise songs, praising God for who he is. They're often teaching Psalms, teaching uh, the congregation as they sing it together. You can even see that in the New Testament, Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Just even see the instruction part of singing there, that we are to sing and by, we are to instruct other people. We are to instruct each other as we sing uh, the hymns that we have in our worship. And so our worship song, songs should not just be vertical, but they're horizontal as well as they teach us good theology. So let's get into our text here. The fool's rejection in the first three verses. You notice the first verse there, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Who is the fool? 
A fool is not somebody who's just lacking in understanding. He's not just a, an ignorant per- person. He's not just a, a simpleton who just doesn't know any better. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about the fool. The fool in the Bible is a person who has no relationship with God. He is morally perverse. He has rejected the truth. He is spiritually decayed. He is a, a perverse and vile person in Scripture. For a good description, Listen to this from Isaiah 32, verse 6. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines towards wickedness, to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, and to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. And there you have a description in the Bible of, of a fool. If you want a good example of a fool, what better example is there than Nabal, which is really, the, by the way, the Hebrew word for fool, which does beg a question, um, you know, when, why did his parents name him Nabal? I mean, they're basically giving him the name fool. And I don't know what happened at that moment when he was born, but somehow they were looking at him going, well, let's just call him fool. And uh, notice what his wife says about him in uh, 1 Samuel 25, 25. Please let not, do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. And I think if you go back in that story, you will see... Uh, what a fool looks like. Nabal is the quintessential fool. So this is what the Bible means when it talks about the fool. The fool has said this. Notice what his creed is. Notice what his uh, confession is, his profession is. Notice what it says or what he says. There is no God. Some have translated this as, as just no God or no God for me. Uh, the there is there is actually supplied there. And it, it could be translated just as no God, which does certainly convey the sentiment of the statement here. We're not describing somebody who is uh, an atheist in the sense that they have just, um, that they're rejecting God because they don't believe he exists. It's, it's more than that. It's more than just, we're not just talking about atheists who, who deny the existence of God. What we're describing here is basically a practical atheism, a, a rejection of God by the fool. He, he has no place for God in his life. He says, no God for me. You'll just even notice that because it, this confession doesn't come from his word. It's not just his word speaking. It's a statement that comes from his heart. It comes out of his heart, it says there. The fool has said, in his heart, there is no God. And the heart is the, the control center of the person. It's, it's where our will, our desires, our intentions are. And, and this declaration of no God comes from because the will of man has refused to submit to God, not, not because of facts or intellect that lead him to that conclusion. And the idea here expressed is that God is of no importance to the fool. Uh, the fool lives his life without a care for, for what, who God is, for his creator. He doesn't care about what God has said or God's claims on his life. He, he has no interest in, in the things of God. He, he resists Yahweh's lordship over his life. And he lives as though God doesn't exist, whether he actually believes there is a God or not. The reason this is so is all, all people really do know that there is a God. Even the most ardent atheists know that God exists. And yet all people reject him. And we know that from Romans 18, 18 to 21. And there it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the Creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through the, what has been made 
so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Again, you can see there the fact that men know that there is a God. It's evident. You know, really, all of creation, every tree, every animal, everything that you could, every star in the sky, every human being, everything speaks out that there is a God who's created this world. If people just open their eyes and look around them. They can see the power of God, the greatness of God. They could see his wisdom. And yet when they see that, the, the, the invisible attributes of God in this world, they suppress that truth and they reject it. And that's what you see in the text here. The fool says there is no God, not because he's convinced of it by, by facts, but really it comes down from a, a deep-seated hatred of God, a suppressing of the truth about God. And this rejection of God is revealed in many ways in people. It could be uh, outright atheism. It could be a, a kind of deism where we believe there's a God, but he's just simply unconcerned with the world and, I, and he doesn't care about the things that are going around about us. People show, people, um, show their rejection of God by creating false gods and false worship and false religions. They're just simply an example of man's rejection of God, a, a running away of God, of seeking something other than God. I mean, even in its most, this, this kind of creed, this kind of uh, rejection of God comes in a most sinister form where people take the name of Christian or the name of the church and they, they, they say they worship God, but they tweak and they they fashion God into an image that they is, that's more palatable them, to them. And so there's many ways that people can show that they uh, have rejected God as the fool here has done. There is no God. And what we believe uh, impacts and influences how we live. And it's the same same is true for this practical atheism, this, this rejection of God. It, it influences how people live. It impacts their conduct. And you could see that in the next verse there, or the next part of that verse. It says, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. And here we see the consequences, the moral consequences of rejecting God. They are corrupt. Corrupt has the idea of being rotten, uh, uh, destruction, ruined, spoiled. This is a a moral rottenness, a spiritual ruin, a corruption of the inner person of man. When Adam sinned and and all he and, and all those who came after him died spiritually, the inner man, the inner person became rotten and corrupt like a decayed corpse. This, this word is also used a few times about the generation before the flood. Genesis 11 to, to 12, it says this, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now it's possible that the psalmist is even using this word and because of its connection to uh, Genesis 6 there. And if it is, then this is a subtle warning to the fool that um, there is judgment, that God, is, God sees and that God is, uh, will judge those who are corrupt. And so this, this inner corruption produces an outer corruption. Uh, they have committed abominable, abominable deeds, it says there. Abominable is something that's morally repulsive. Vile, repugnant. The actions of a fool are, are as attractive as a, a rotting corpse in the humid heat of summer. That's how God feels about the actions of a fool. And that leads to the conclusion at the end of the verse there that there is no one who does good. And maybe at this point you're tempted to think, well, maybe this is just David's opinion. 
Maybe this is only like a, a certain class of people, just, just fools. And there's other people, though, uh, that are not, not quite as bad as the fool. You know, is this really an accurate assessment of people? I mean, we can't really be all this bad. Maybe there's a few good souls out there that, that David just really didn't notice out there. Maybe David is just sort of a pessimistic fool and, and he doesn't really know much. Well, look at what Yahweh says about man in verse 2 there. This is Yahweh's evaluation of people. It says, The Lord, Yahweh, has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understand who seek after God. And here we have Yahweh enthroned above the heavens, looking down, stooping down to examine the sons of men, to, to intently search for, for uh, the, the sons of men here, the people of this world. And a language like this, uh, just emphasizing the fact that the Lord looks down from heaven, emphasizes his, his transcendence, his sovereignty, his greatness, and the, really the smallness of the human race. There should be a hint of, of a, a coming judgment for the reader if he knows his Bible well. Because when Yahweh comes down to look on the earth, to look on people, often judgment comes. You saw that with uh, Genesis 6, where Yahweh looks down on the earth. And then the flood came. Genesis 11, verse 5 says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built, referring to the Tower of Babel. And you know what happened. God divided them and sent them away as a judgment. Genesis 18, verse 20, this, um, with Sodom and Gomorrah. It says there, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Well, we know what happened there. God came down to examine, and, and there was no righteous person except for Lot. And God rained down fire and brimstone. Exodus 14.24 refers to the, uh, the Egyptian army as they pursued the Israelites in the Red Sea. The morning watch, it says there, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. The Lord looks down and judgment follows. So what is Yahweh looking for? What is Yahweh searching for as he examines the sons of men? Notice what it says there, to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. He's looking for someone who understands, someone who has a spiritual understanding, someone who understands truth correctly and, and lives according to that truth. It's uh, the idea of being prudent, of being uh, wise here. He's looking for someone who's wise as opposed to the fool. He's, he's, he's looking for also someone who is seeking him, someone who is desiring to know him, to love him, to, to worship him. And think of it, among the billions and billions of people who have ever existed, here is the all-knowing God who knows everything. The God who knows all hearts perfectly and whose heart, every, all hearts are open before him. The God who is everywhere present, who is in all places at the same time. This God, Yahweh, is looking throughout the whole human race to find somebody who is wise, somebody who who even wants to worship him, who cares to, to love him, to serve him, to enjoy him. So we know that this is a comprehensive examination of all people. And what's the result of this search from Yahweh? Well, you can see that in verse 3. Yahweh's search comes up empty-handed. Verse 3 says, They have all, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This really repeats the verdict given in, in verse 2, doesn't it? But there's an emphasis here. Notice that the emphasis that's here and not in verse 2 at the, as the result of this search. There's a, there's a totality of this. Uh, uh, man has, is a complete 
rejection of God, a complete corruption here. There's the word all, together, not even one, emphasizing that, is the f- that there is nobody who, has, uh, who is wise, nobody who seeks God. All people have turned away from God. All people have turned away from the truth. All people have turned away from righteousness. See, false religion, all religions except the true religion is man turning away from God, running from God, not seeking for God. There's nobody seeking for God. All have been corrupt. This is a, actually a different word than used in verse 2. It's a, it's a word that's used for milk that has turned sour. And when milk turns sour, you throw it out and you give it to the pigs. But here it refers to a, a man who has become tainted and, and soured by, by sin, rendered useless by his sin, corrupt inside. They have all turned away from God. They've all fled from him. They've abandoned him, just like Adam and Eve fled from, from God in the garden. And it ends that evaluation with there is no one who does good, which is repeated from verse 1 there. And then it adds this, just in case you were hoping you may have been an exception. It says, not even one. So no, even you today are, are not good. Never in all of history, from the day Adam fell until today, has there ever been a good person from Adam's race? All races, all nations, all rich people, all poor people, all the educated, all the uneducated, all the corrupt, sorry, all, all people. It doesn't matter where you are and who you are or where you've ever lived. All people are corrupt and never, ever, have ever in their whole life ever done something that God considers to be purely good. All born of Adam's seed have rejected God and become corrupt. As we said, Paul quotes from this passage in Romans 3, 10 to 13, in his, to, to prove that all Jews and all Gentiles are born sinners and condemned by God. And so this is Yahweh's conclusion from his comprehensive and perfect search of all mankind. This is his verdict his verdict on the state of the human heart. And so for you, Christian, this is what you were. You are now a new creation in Christ, but never forget where you came from. Never forget what you were. You know, in, the, in, the, in, the, in our world, you see people who go from rags to riches or who come from obscurity and rise to, to fame and fortune. And what happens sometimes is people go from being poor and being um, unknown and rising to places of fame and fortune as they forget where they came from. Before, they used to be content with with how things were in their life. They were content maybe with little. They were content with being an ordinary Joe. They were uh, a very down-to-earth and and homey kind of person that you'd want to hang out with. But then they become famous. They become rich. Maybe it's in politics. Maybe it's in, uh, they become a movie star or uh, they become a, a famous musician, a singer. And then they become the fame and the fortune come, gets to their head and they forget where they came from and they become proud. They become stuck up big shots who are too great to hang out with common people. They even think they're maybe above the law. They really forget where they came from. And the Christian can do that too, can't he, he or she? So my brothers and my sisters... Remember where you came from. Remember where you were. This psalm describes what you were. See, God didn't look down and, and uh, find you seeking him. God didn't go, well, oh, wow, that is really a great person. I would like to save that person. He didn't look down and go, well, I think that person has potential faith. I'm going to save that person. 
He didn't take note of you because you're so smart and you're a little better than the other person beside you. What did God see when he found you? No, remember when he found you, you were, he saw you wallowing in the muck of your sin. He saw you running from him. He looked at you and you were a, a, a sort of spiritual zombie, alive but really dead, the living dead. You were polluting the earth by your revolting acts of sin. You were doing abominable deeds, as the psalmist says, things that were revolting, vile in God's eyes, repulsive to him. And really all heaven would have rejoiced to see you wiped off the face of the earth. You lived, Christian, before this, before, to spite God by your sins. You were a rebel going off to damnation. You were one who would love to spit in the face of the eternal loving God by your sins. You were some horrible creature that was only worthy of death, a disgusting, abhorrent being whose memory should be wiped out for all eternity. This is what this psalm teaches us. This was us. This is what we were, Christian. Oh, but think of this. But God, but God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love passed by you in your filth, in the muck of your sin. And what did he do? He said, live and made you alive in Christ. He forgave you all your sins. He seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. He adopted you to be his own child. And all of this was simply his grace, his mercy, his love. This was Yahweh's grace to the sinner. So never forget where, who you were and what you were before Christ saved you. Remembering like this psalm does, like going through this psalm reminds us of, of who we were. This was us. And yet God still saved us. God still had compassion on us. God still forgave us and showed mercy to us. And remembering where you came from, remembering who you were, will keep you from spiritual pride. It will keep you from thinking you're better than the unconverted people around you. It'll promote love in your heart. It'll promote a gratitude for what God has done. So remember, as we go through this psalm, as we go through these first three verses This was you, and this describes who you were. And maybe as you're hearing the truth of this psalm, you're going, this bothers me, this offends me. And you may say, surely I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. I I don't rob banks. I I seek to do good to my fellow man. Maybe I'm a church-going person. I give money to the work of God. I try to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm maybe not perfect, but I'm not as bad as, as most people. I'm a pretty good person. Maybe this psalm is just, this, this is just talking about some wicked, wicked people. Maybe this is just like people like Stalin or Chairman Mao and, you know, dictators and cruel people like that, serial killers. That's, that's the kind of people here. Maybe that's, but this is not, can't be me. Uh, but I, there's a problem with your, with your evaluation You see, you have a wrong evaluation of yourself. You're comparing yourself uh, to your own standards. You're comparing yourself to other people and you consider yourself good because you're not as bad as some. But you see, Yahweh, the God who made you, holds you to a higher standard than that. He holds you to his own holy standard. He judges you by his own character. And so God, remember, God judges you by his law, not yours. And so this psalm here is really God's, how God's perspective on you. This is God's verdict on your life, on your heart. And his verdict is you're corrupt and you're not good, you're, but you're bad. But you may say, well, then is there any hope? Is there anything that can be done? I mean, if I am so corrupt and ruined as this, is there any way I can be restored? There is hope and there is grace. Even as we look at the psalm, we, we, we know that there are some people who are righteous, some people who are, are 
are God's people. There is grace. There is mercy, as we've said. You see, God came down to this world to save sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ became a man. He lived among sinful, wicked people. He lived a perfect, righteous life. Always doing perfect. Always doing what's right. And God's verdict on his life was that it was good. And it was right. And it was beautiful. And he went to the, Jesus Christ went to the cross. And, and there on the cross, God poured out his anger and wrath upon sinners. On, upon those who he would save. And then Jesus rose from the dead. And now God calls all people to repent and believe. And maybe as you're reading this, as you're hearing this psalm, you're realizing how, that you are corrupt and you've never repented of your sins and you've never turned from your sins and you thought you were good, but you realize you're bad. Well, this is your day to repent. So turn from your sins. Repent of your sins. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ to find mercy and grace. And God is a God, in spite of all your wickedness and corruption, who is a God of compassion, a God who forgives sinners. And so this psalm is a great opportunity to, for us to, to proclaim the gospel. That yes, people are, are depraved. Yes, people are, are corrupt and wicked. But God is a great savior. God is a, a merciful savior. God is a God who can transform the human heart and can change us and transform us and eventually bring us to his kingdom, into his kingdom with glory. And that is our hope. And that is our, our joy. Well, as we end this section here and move to the next one, we, there, there are some serious consequences uh, for those who have been saved by the grace of God. Or sorry, I should say this. Let me repeat that. The corrupt nature of man has some serious consequences for those who have been saved by God's grace. Those who have been redeemed, who are God's people, often face the terrible rage that a fool has towards God and his truth. And that's what we see in the next section there, in uh, the fool's rage in verse 4 to 6. It says there, Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? The fool rejects God because he wants to be his own God and really because he hates that which is good and he hates Yahweh. And his hatred of Yahweh leads to a hatred of Yahweh's people. And these are God's people who resemble Yahweh. And the world is bothered by them. They're bothered by their lives and they cannot help but persecute them. And so in this section, we're confronted with that truth that, that God's people are going to face persecution from the wicked people of this world. That is to be expected. That is to not be an anomaly. It's something that's normal. It's part of the fact that people are corrupt. But in the, in the face of that, there is hope and there is justice. You know, when you look at verses four to, to six, it is a, it's an awkward kind of reading, and I'm not sure why that is. But let's hopefully we can uh, explain it well here. The speaker in verse four is either God or it is David, but, and I, and I lean to seeing it as more of being God. This is the speaker here. But either way, uh, this, these thoughts here reflect God's thoughts, Yahweh's thoughts on the persecution of his people. There is in the, in verse four, there, there is a surprise there. There's an astonishment. There's a, a sympathy there, a compassion and an indignation at the wicked who are devouring the godly. It says there, do not, do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? You'll notice there, the wicked are those who eat up the righteous like one eats bread. Well, how do you eat bread? Hopefully you, hopefully you can eat bread. If you can't, then pick some other kind of food that you eat. But bread is a staple of our diet, or usually it is. And then that day, especially so. And we eat bread regularly. We eat it. Casually, we eat it eagerly, we eat it thoughtlessly. It's just something we do. 
And in a sense, that describes persecution for the wicked. They, they just, it's, it's regular, it's casual, it's eager, it's thoughtless. It's just part of normal life, persecuting the righteous. And, and we're not just talking about like putting people in jail. We're talking about uh, slander and, and insults and uh, rejecting people and um, shunning people, things like that. All that includes persecution. And so here we have the wicked eating up the righteous like their bread. And that kind of language of eating the righteous or, uh, is not uncommon in Scripture. And just one example that's very graphic and very vivid to describe the kind of persecution that is often faced by God's people is found in Micah, Micah 3, 1 to, to 3 there. It says, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them who, and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. I think this describes a very violent and a very uh, cruel kind of way that uh, people in Israel were treating the godly. Psalm 79, verse 6 and 7 says, Pour out your wrath upon the nations, which don't, do not know you, and upon the kingdoms, which do not call upon your, your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. And so verse 4, uh, the sense of verse 4 is a statement of astonishment and indignation. In a sense, we could look at it like this. Are the wicked so blind? Are they so ignorant that they would attack my people? The other item that is mentioned in there that surprises, in a sense, the speaker here is that the wicked do not call upon the Lord. They, that is to say, they don't rely upon the Lord. They don't, especially by the means of prayer and worship and praise and not calling upon the Lord, again, simply uh, shows their atheistic beliefs, explains their calloused indifference to the lives of the righteous. As they have no regard, since they have no regard for Yahweh, they certainly have no regard for his people either. It seems that the speaker just is shocked that these, the, the doers of wickedness do not realize what they're doing. They're unaware of the disaster that's hanging over their heads. They're, they're like somebody who, who sees a baby bear out in the forest and teases that, that uh, bear and, and and annoys it, unaware that the mother bear stands over, ready to tear him to bits. And so it is with the wicked. Yahweh is there, ready to come to the defense of his people. And you can see that in the next verses there, verse 5 and 6. It says, There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. There they are in great dread. Great dread there could be uh, translated Fear to fear or terribly afraid. There's a double emphasis there on a great fear, a terrible horror. And what are they so afraid of? Well, they could be afraid because Yahweh has come in judgment to call them to account for how they have lived and how they have treated his people. They thought perhaps that the godly were defenseless. But now they realize that the Almighty has come to set things right. Their fear could also come from a troubled conscience. Their evil deeds plague their conscience. And Spurgeon says this about that. The ghost of past sins is a terrible specter to haunt any man. Though unbelievers may boast as loudly as they will, a sound is in their ears which makes them ill at ease. Either way, the wicked may oppress and crush uh, the righteous, but eventually it ends in fear and dread and terror. Notice what it says there, though, that for they're in great dread for God is with the generation of the wicked. Yahweh is with his people. He is there to come. His presence is there to comfort them, to care for them, to protect them, and eventually to vindicate them. Verse 6 there addresses the wicked people. The wicked there it says, "You would shame the plans. You would put to shame the, the counsel of the afflicted." But then it says, "But the Lord, but Yahweh is his refuge. 
Yahweh is the refuge of the wicked. He is their protection. He will frustrate the purposes of the wicked to shame the godly. And here, here is comfort for the godly person. You know, the psalm has set forth the, the depravity of man. It's, it's painted him in his worst colors. It has shown him for what he is. He is, cap- he is a person. We're, we're all born capable of great evil. And if you just go through history and you think of the Inquisition and you think of the Holocaust and you think of so many times where people have shown such cruelty and hatred to other people, you see that 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 hatred, that corruption is often, that runs in the human heart is often directed to the Christian. We are like sheep in the midst of wolves. And as we understand the the true nature of the human heart, that can make us fearful. That can make us afraid of what they will do to us. We we know that they are capable of great evil and great, they're, they're corrupt people around us. But this text reminds us to not be afraid because the shepherd is with us. We may be sheep in the midst of wolves, but we have a great shepherd. And his presence is with us. Uh, even in the jail, even in the torture chamber, even in the gulags, even in the concentration camps, even in the worst places we could ever think that people could put us, our God is with us. And our God's presence will bring us joy and will keep our souls even if we suffer. But there's also the other comfort here that our, our shepherd will also bring justice to those who oppress us. In a sense, the, the text here has the idea of you know, if you mess with the sheep, you may feel the rod of the shepherd. It may come now or it may come later. But Yahweh will bring perfect, the perfect measure of judgment on the wicked in his own time. And this is a comfort for us as Christians as we look out into the world and see the great hostility towards God, towards his truth, even towards us. And it will calm us and it will give us strength and it will give us an ability to handle whatever would come our way. Yahweh will bring relief to his battered people who suffer in this world. And this is brought out in the next section, the fool's ruin. And here, verse 7 says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. We could have titled this section, The Righteous's Restoration, uh, but that doesn't fit my point. So I called it the fool's ruin. Um, however, when Yahweh restores his people, that will mean that the fool will be ruined, that he will be conquered, that his downfall is complete, and that all fools, all sinful people will be removed from this world. And in the conclusion of this psalm, David expresses a wish for Israel's deliverance, Israel's salvation. The, the idea of salvation there is broader than just salvation from sin. This is a del- uh, the idea of more deliverance. Probably in his mind, there's the deliverance from the persecution of the ungodly on God's people. David has seen God's people's sad condition. He's seen them being devoured by the wicked. And he's watched them suffer. And he desires to see them delivered from their enemies. Notice what, what it says there. there um, oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Why does he say that salvation comes out of Zion? Why Zion? Well, Zion is the place of God's presence. That's where the, the ark was placed. That's where the, the glory of the Lord rested among his people. And this is sort of a way of just saying that salvation will come from Yahweh. Deliverance will come from Yahweh. But David doesn't just have good wishes. He doesn't just hope things that may, not, may or may not happen. He knows that restoration will come. You can see that in the next part of that verse, when the Lord restores his captive people. He knows it was going to happen when it happens. Uh, Restores his captive people could or should be translated, restores the fortunes of his people. The idea, the phrase here has a more general meaning than just captivity. It refers to a a restoration after a time of difficulty. And it's a, a phrase that's often used for the complete restoration of the nation of Israel at the end of the age. And this restoration really means the deliverance of Israel from their enemies, the vindication of God's people. 
the return to living in the land and prosperity and safety. It also probably includes the idea of salvation of God's people, the salvation of Israel from sin and its guilt. And when God does that, what's the result for Israel? There will be joy. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. That's what David's wish. That's what he wants to see. That's what he desires. That's what he, he looks forward to. And I think we, we can look forward to that too. We can look forward to, to the time when God restores all things, when God renews this world and makes all things new and he removes all sadness. All, the curse is gone. Sin is gone. All those who are wicked are gone. All that is left is righteousness and goodness. And Yahweh dwells among his people. And because we are in Christ, because the Christian is in Christ, we will be at that time of Israel's restoration. We will share their joy. We will share the the beauty and glory that will come. And it's important that we end on this note because as we face a, a hostile, angry world against God, against us, it's good for us to remember what's to come, to, to look forward to the, the, the glorious inheritance that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And it's all more glorious because as we think about the depravity of man, we remember again that we shouldn't be in that, that this is God's grace that we get to look forward to uh, his restoration, his, the joy that he has for us. Well, let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us. You are so kind to us, so merciful. Uh, we did not do anything that was good. We, did, we were corrupt and ruined sinners, dead in our sins and trespasses, And you came and showed mercy to us and gave us hope. And even though this life is attended with so many difficulties, yet you are with us and even make the the worst of situations um, for our good, Lord. What can we say to you? What can we give to you but our whole lives, our whole hearts, all thankfulness, all love, all joy? Uh, Lord, we want to give it all to you. And um, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.